I'm more concerned with long-term feasible quality and to say, what is the acceptable quality I'm willing to, to take? And now what is the negotiated rate for the quality that I want? Rather than saying, I want this job done, how cheap can you do it? Hello and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate related topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Nicholas Cook and I'm here with my co-host Matt Williams. Our guest today is Zach Howell. He is the principal of Barrett Consulting Services. He brings over 18 years of experience in multifamily residential, ranging from just small repairs to major renovations. Uh, he's somebody we're really excited to have on the show because um, everyone who owns you know, apartment buildings and houses and things like that, you all have repairs and maintenance and improvements. So uh, Zach, you know, thanks for being with us. We really appreciate you joining us today. Do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about your background, your company, kind of how you got into the maintenance world? Sure. So uh, as a principal of BEAR, just want to let everybody know, uh, the BEAR actually stands for Building Evaluations and Reporting. So we really just deal with anything that's related to the physical properties. Uh, and my background, honestly, is is majority multifamily, um, although I've had some clients with some scattered site single family stuff. So I do understand sort of the, uh, the approach on that too. But um, I have a perspective of preservation and that is really my intent as I, as I start to look at problems. It's really through that maintenance um, perspective. Absolutely. Well, you're definitely known as, a, as an expert in our you know, side of the world here. So uh, like I said, we're glad to have you here. Um, I'm going to start with some basics just because, you know, uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with that. And you know what? It's always good to go back to the fundamentals. Um, so, you know, a lot of times people, when they have maybe a repair, if they own a Plex or maybe even a small multifamily, you know, they're going to call a friend to help them. They might call a friend to get a referral from somebody, you know, they may even just go on Craigslist randomly and pull somebody off the, off the, uh, internet here. Can you start off by telling us really like who needs to be licensed and why? Uh, I mean, really, if you look at the, the CCB, you're saying anybody that is delivering services related to repairs and maintenance, um, should be a licensed contractor. And CCB is, can you tell us what? Just a construction contractors board. So basically anybody in the state of Oregon who is independently offering those services um, should carry a license mm -hmm. uh, through the CCB. So um, a caveat to that is as a management firm, uh, you are allowed to, you know, if you're a licensed management firm, uh, to take care of some of those repairs in-house. Um, and because you have that licensure uh, with the real estate, you know, board or whatever, um, that CCB sort of is, unnecessary but there's i think there's a fine line there but there's some advantages to that obviously yeah and that's true in oregon so yeah um and it's probably pretty common that you know states in general have licensing requirements sure. for contractors yeah absolutely yeah although i know washington doesn't really have much of a um getting your you. getting your contractor's license in washington is is about a 35 minute exercise and it's it's very easy <laughs> so and i would say that too as far as oregon i mean oregon is not uh that complex either i mean if you have 350 dollars and two hours to sit down for an open book test you can get your contractor's license so yeah. i think it's always buyer beware in, in all those situations Definitely, yeah. definitely. Which kind of leads to the next thing. You know, there's this kind of common question people say, which is, you know, are you licensed, bonded, and insured, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what a, you know, can you tell us a little bit about bonding and insurance? I mean, are, what's the difference between them? Do you think it really matters? Like, are, are, are consumers really being protected? Um, I think the, to simplify the, the two, I think you look at insurance as that is going to protect me from the, the work that is performed 
uh, via the contract? Did the, did the contractor actually perform uh, the work that was outlined in the agreement? Um, and so you carry that insurance to basically say, yes or no, they didn't. If they didn't, then I go back and try to get that insurance money. Really what the bonding does is to say, did they perform this piece of work in a professional workmanlike manner? And, and you know, the sort of the, the example I always use is you can have a contractor that you've hired to build you a fence um, and you could come out and look at that fence and be like, this fence looks ridiculous and, and like garbage. Uh, and they can say, hey, I have honored the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. you can't go after my insurance. Well, then I'm going to take it out of your bond. Yeah. So that basically is my guarantee to say that um, I have some sort of a quality um, expectation of the work. So I, to, that's very simplified, but I think from a consumer standpoint, that's really the, the purpose of those two things. And when I talk bonding with most of my clients, it's to say, make sure that that bond covers the entire cost of that project. So, I mean, a typical bond in, in Oregon would be $20,000, sure. which, is, which is not a lot. No, no. So if I'm thinking about hiring a contractor to do a $150,000 piece of work, um, they may, to, may need to go get a, a temporary bond to cover that entire cost of project. Like a performance bond. Performance bond, like, yeah. Like, very, and it's really, for that contractor, it's usually fairly inexpensive, and they're, they're just going to wrap that into the bid cost. Um, but as, as the consumer, that's, that's covering you in case the entire project goes awry. I mean, as far you, as quality goes. Yeah. I mean, I can see, and you have ever come across contractors who are like, look, I've been doing this for 25 years. If you want me to get a bond, you know, maybe we shouldn't work together. I mean, should that be a red flag to you or I tend how to, seriously I, should you take that? Yeah. I, I, I tend to think that's, that's a red flag. I think, um, you know, I, the one that sort of comes to mind is also sort of this red flag where someone's saying, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to name you as additionally insured on my insurance policy. Yeah. But that that should be a best practice. And for me, I'm saying that should be a phone call to your insurance carrier and cost you about $5. So why wouldn't you do that? The bond is going to cost them a little more money, but at the end of the day, if they've already got the relationship with that bonding agent, then it's, it's not a, it's not a major financial, you know, burden on them to say, you know, if you are really, you know, want this job, then you just jump through the hoops and you get the bond and you get get the job. If not, then I'll find somebody who will. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that comes up a lot in real estate and um, I think, you know, the repair maintenance construction industry kind of lands in this a lot is both for like, you know, realtors or uh, I guess I should say brokers because everyone's a realtor, uh, property managers. A lot of times the public will commoditize our services. They'll look at us and say, the first question is always about fee, right? That's what they want to know because they don't believe or they haven't been taught to know that there's a big difference. Um, somehow attorneys have been able to you know, you know, convince people that they're worth more and various prices. But um, <laughs> so you, you see that a lot in, uh, in maintenance. And so like, do you think that contractors really are commodities? I mean, framing's framing, right? Plumbing's plumbing, there's code. Like what, I mean, do you think that it's, there's a big difference between vendors? It, it's such an interesting question because I think that um, you know, as a commodity, basically you're defining that as something that is generally accepted as easy to source. Uh, everyone understands exactly what is involved. Um, and it, there's a price point that's basically generally accepted. And I think that as a, as a repair, as, as a contractor goes, um, I don't think it's anything like a commodity because I think each one of those contractors is going to hold, you know, a different quality approach, a different, uh, labor force, a different, um, you know, you name it. I mean, it's, it's always buyer beware. So I think as you look at this relationship that you're trying to build with it, with a contractor, you're saying, where do those 
different levels as far as the approach to the work, where do those lie? And to say, what is that? What is the related value to that? And then can we agree on a value? And it's always a negotiation. Um, I think as a, as a, as a manager company, you have to get out of your head to say, you know, I'm, I'm really most concerned with cost uh, and you have to be realistic. And I think the better approach is to say, I'm more concerned with long-term feasible quality yeah. and to say, what is the, what is the acceptable quality I'm willing to, to take? And now what is the negotiated rate for the quality that I want? Rather than saying, I want this job done. How cheap can you do it? Well, I can, I can, you know, I can do something really cheap and you're going to have to redo it next week, but it, it's not going to cost you anything today. Do you find that that's something you have to do a lot of convincing for? Because obviously, like, you've worked Absolutely. for some fairly large, you know, institutional probably clients. Yeah. Um, you know, pretty much people of all sizes. And that's something that you have to kind of convince them and say, hey, we're not, we're not shopping price here only. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think it's, it's a constant education because obviously cost and, and pricing is, is key to the budgets and staying within, obviously, any sort of, of capital approach. But... I feel like all of that is really related to the scope. So if you if you you know if you don't have a well-defined scope, then you're sort of in this gray area where contractors are going to hit you with all sorts of jargon and um, just other you know contractor speak, where their real goal is to just get you under contract and then at some point surprise you with kind change orders or the bait and switch or yeah. these other things because. You're, you felt like you were getting the lowest cost at the front and you're getting some great deal. But the reality is you always give for what maybe. you pay for. Yeah. I mean, in anything. So it's, it's, just, it's, it's a tactic. So I, that's where I feel like if I can be very uh, detailed with that scope and I can have everything be very transparent, now I could hold that contractor to some sort of expectation that says, you know, you, you spec'd out and you bid for this specific product to go on in this specific way and you quoted me this price and this is exactly what I expect. So don't bait and switch me with some lower product quality product. Don't bait and switch me with some random guy that doesn't what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, Zach, thanks for coming in and, and meeting with us today. I really appreciate it. Good to see you again. My pleasure. Good to see you. Um, you know, I, I think that that really speaks true to um, all of us as consumers, because if it's not our industry, we don't really know what to look for, what to hold them accountable for, what to look for in a scope. And that's one of the main things that, people ask um, of us in our industry in property management and real estate is, you know, who's on your team, who's handling repairs, who, um, who is it that is finding the qualified contractor? So tell us a little bit about your selection and screening process for qualified contractors. I, again, I think it all starts with sort of the scope and then their ability to perform that scope. But I think as you look at someone, um, just as a general contractor, you're saying... Can you just elaborate on what a scope is, right? I mean, so, I, I know what you're talking about, but you yeah, know, not so, everyone's familiar with that term. It's, that's a really good question. Um, the scope really is anything that you want specifically done. And I hate to, to make that broad statement, but the reality is if you want it done, put it in the scope, and then obviously that should be in the contract. So which, which helps us get to apples to apples, right? When we're comparing absolutely. contractors, absolutely. You got a scope of, uh, you know, 20 or tab roofing versus architectural roofing exactly. or whatever. So yeah, that's that example, example with roofing is perfect because you can come and ask, ask a contractor, Hey, give me a bid on a roof. Well, you want to, you know, a 20 year three tab comp. Do you want a 40 year architectural comp? Do you want new, you know, edge metal? Do you want, you know, metal in the valleys? Do you, what do you want? So if you can start to identify that and define that scope down, now all of a sudden everybody that's bidding on that has a very clear approach of how much it's going to cost them. 
can they source materials in more inexpensively? Can they, you know, find benefits in the labor force? Um, so that scope really is that approach that you're going to take as it relates to the entirety of, of that specific project. So this is a just quick kind of interjection here that I just have a question because I just thought of it. It's a selfish question, but I think it probably applies to a lot of people in the audience. Yeah. So when I started flipping houses, um, I did not know anything about houses. Like, I, I, you know, the first house I bought, I walked through and uh, said, yep, I'll just give you the price you, you want. We didn't do an inspection. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. We were pretty young, though. <laughs> sure. um, so, like, if somebody said, hey, you should write a scope, I would say, that sounds great. It sounds like to write a scope, you need to know a decent amount about the product that you want. Like a roof, for example, you know, how, how do you get educated to write a scope? And, and if you don't have time for that or you don't know how to, I mean, are there people that write scopes for you? I mean, is that, is that something that exists or it seems there's a little question mark there? It's, a, it's, a, it's another good question. Um, I will tell you my experience as I came up through the industry was to create relationships with people who do that work. So I have relationships with roofers and I would just say, can I walk this with you, talk it with you, teach me how and what you're going to do and why? Why do I need metal in a, in a valley? Like, what advantage do I have there? And I think as you, know, you go through that, that experience, it's very valuable. For those folks that don't have the time to go through that experience, to take that learning curve, um, yes. I mean, as, a, as, a, as an envelope and as a building consultant, I do that every day for my clients. I basically say, what do you want to do? What's the breadth of this project? Let me help you develop the scope. Uh, and even the specification as to what products we're going to use, what's the you know waterproofing methodology, those types of things, so that they can go out and then we can use that to enter you know entertain bids, so that they are apples to apples. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know if you don't have a well-defined scope, then those bids are basically worthless. I mean, you're just you're in a place where somebody's going to have hearsay about the best way or the worst way or whatever, and you're not going to be able to get anywhere. Well, you know, and, and you, you make a good point that there's a lot of experience in that, right? I mm -hmm. mean, when I get three bids for a roof and I've got three separate scopes, one of the things that really helps me learn about that product or that process isn't the sales guy that's selling that specific, you know, roofing material, yeah. which is great because I can talk to the roofer and they tell me, I've been putting this roof on for 30 years. I've never had anyone come back Absolutely. and it goes on really well. It's very quick. I can keep the cost down Absolutely. and I can ask them about that scope, right? <clears throat> so that's something obviously that, you know, you in, in your industry, when you're selecting and screening these, these contractors you're going to be using, it's a little bit um, different process when you know the product, you know the process and you know what to ask for, right? Because a lot of, of uh, roof, roofers or any trade, yeah. they're not necessarily salesmen. So they're no. going to say, this is what we do. And I, it's, it's come about a few times where I'd say, hey, well, here's another scope. And why would they do this instead of that? And they'll say, well, yeah, I can, I can use that material as well. It'll change the price to X. That's I just right. didn't bid that because I thought you wanted the cheapest roof ever. That's right. <laughs> right? I, and I think, too, I mean, you get sort of get in this, in this cheap. scenario yeah. where... <laughs> You're just trying to learn along the, and, and ask those questions. I mean, I've, I've, had, I've gone through this personally with like asphalt. You know, like, well, what do I know about asphalt, right? So you get these contractors, and I highly recommend to, to folks, especially on the, on, the, on the independent rental owner type stuff, where get all, maybe get all three of those contractors to the site and let them see each other and walk it and just say like, hey, I, I want you guys to tell me what the best approach here is and have them maybe have that debate. At the end of the day, um, you know, it typically is going to come to a position where if all three of those contractors can knock that project out of the park, now I can just look at cost, 
right? And like, that's ultimately what I'm trying to get to is I have three completely fully qualified people um, that want to earn my business and they're willing to cut a percent here or do something over here to make it worth my while from a value standpoint. Um, that's a beautiful thing versus comparing and contracting, you know, this, this contractor who is running a legit business and he has overhead and he has tools and supplies and labor and workers comp versus this guy over here is working at the back of his truck. Who's just saying, Oh, I can do that for a lot cheaper. Well, those two are not going to measure up. How can I, I just want I another thing that came to mind. Sorry, Matt. You got a lot of stuff coming to mind. You know, it's that, uh, Americano I had this morning. Mm -hmm. I don't usually have coffee. And so it just got the gears turning. But, um, in any case, how important are references? I mean, when you're taking on a new contractor, are you, are you asking for references and calling those references? I know sometimes people like ask and then they don't call. Um, I mean, is that something you found is, has been valuable? Um, I, I mean, nobody's going to give you a reference of somebody that hates them. Hopefully. I would think. <laughs> so is it really worth my while to call all five references? Typically not. I would probably call one or two people um, just to get like a, you know, how did the project go? More of the questions that I'm asking is, does this contractor communicate well? How did this contractor leave the job site? Um, were they wrapped up by 4.30 in the afternoon? What would your resident say if I called them about how the project went? Those are more of the questions versus like, you know, can they hang a window? Can they like, great. I'm, I'm not necessarily qualifying them for those things. I'm really qualifying them as a business because that resident is going to look at that contractor as an extension of the ownership and management. Sure. So they're Thank representing you. that, that manager company, that owner in that transaction. Um, but yeah, as far as references go, I am a huge believer in direct referrals. So not only do I talk with people that I trust and say, have you used these guys specifically? Um, but I do a lot of drive-bys. So if I know that contractor X just got finished up with a project over on Burnside, I'm going to go drive that project and just be like, how, how does it look? Is the, you know, the deciding match up on the corners? Is everything, you know, tight? Does he have, you know, we look at things from waterproofing, you know, is there a dynamic sealant joint? Is there head flashing on the windows, upturned in dams, all those things that I'm looking for that I would expect. I'm looking at those, those different projects saying, is this their, um, you know, is this their standard product? Um, cause that's, that's really what I want to find out is, you know, and then if I can get in touch with those, that, that manager company, that ownership, then I can maybe have a conversation as it relates to, um, timelines, schedules, change orders. I mean, those are really where your industry network really, I feel like comes into play is I'm really trying to qualify this, you know, this specific project. And I'm hoping I can find three people that I can, you know, kind of let it, you know, battle it out. Well, you know, Zach, the last few years, cost of construction has gone crazy. Massive. And all contractors are busy, and they have a hard time keeping a crew. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the challenges, I think, has become, for our clients, I think, has become timing, right? Because time is money. They say they can get it done by X time. They don't show up, or they just can't get it done, or the materials aren't there because they didn't order it ahead. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there, that has obviously been a challenge. How do you really look at that um, as far as... Uh, trying to qualify that incoming contractor to say, okay, are you going to actually cross the finish line in the timeline that you set? Because I think in a, in a, I took a course from you probably, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago that <laughs> really was looking at trying to solidify a specific mm -hmm. um, contract deadline and putting some incentives into the contract. Certainly. Is that, can you speak to that? Yeah, a I, bit? I believe that a lot of that is, uh, is contractual. I think you can, you can set up uh, obviously incentives. You can set up penalties. 
the, the, the two main drivers that I see there are number one, how much of this project is this contractor going to self perform in house? And that, and you, it's hard to sometimes get an honest response to that uh, because a lot of contractors will say, Hey, we, you know, we perform 80% of the work in house. Um, just to clarify, you're saying that they have employees that are performing 80%. They're not yes. subbing it out to a drywall guy, That's right. a, a That's framer, right. and that kind of so thing. So they're saying only 20% of this project is actually getting subbed out. Okay. Um, which in this current market, that's just not the case. So most of the projects that we oversee right now, we're probably at a 40 to 60% subcontractor base. Um, a lot of contractors will do the, what they consider, you know, this the important part they'll do the waterproofing they'll do those kind of things but when it comes to throwing siding up they're going to subcontract that they're going to subcontract the roof they're obviously going to subcontract trades and electrical and plumbing and things like that so that's that's kind of question number one um question number two for me is going to come down to um how many other projects do you have currently prioritizing your Pri- project am, is others. my project a priority for you yeah um, and I think that that's a, that's a tough question to ask because of course everyone's going to be like, well, yeah, you're my priority. But then as I look at this thing from a, from an independent rental owner, potential perspective, I'm saying, obviously that, you know, 50 plex is probably going to pay you more and you probably have, you're, you're going to move guys over to that before you move guys over to me. Um, so again, you're sort of, maybe you're reducing the pool of contractors saying, I really just want to work with contractors who are doing the majority of this type of work. So I don't, so I'm not competing with a contractor who's got, you know, a $4 million project down the road and he's sitting here on my $50,000 project while it's raining on it for two months. Cause he does, if he loses it, who cares? Mm-hmm. It matters to me, yeah. but to him, it may not be a high priority. So those are questions we ask a lot. I think in that interview process is to just be like, how much are you self-performing and really what's your capacity uh, currently? And then what's your capacity over the next six months? Because uh, I think that's key. And of course, you know, if, if you're a contractor in the Northwest, you you better understand how to work through the winter. Yeah. I don't, I don't care what. I mean, other than painting and caulking, we're like roofing, siding. It, it all happens. Yeah. It's happening right now. I mean, well, and, and you, we touched on this just a bit. The contracts. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you signing their contracts? Are you drafting your own contract? Are you just reading through each of them before yeah. you sign? What, what's, the, what's the process if I'm going to be hiring a contractor? How do I know if that's the typical contract? The thing I tell my clients is, you know, who, who do you suppose their contract protects? You or them, right? So if you're just taking that proposal or that bid and you're just saying, yes, I'm executing this, um, that is likely not in your best interest. Um, so the reality is I think it's a, it's a, it should be a, a mix of both. So have, you know, have your own legal counsel draft contracts and say, hey, we want certain terms and conditions uh, in every contract. Um, so that when we put this thing together, it's a little bit of yours, a little bit of ours. Can we both, you know, redline this, talk about it, see what works for both of us at the end of the day, it's something robust and it's, it's well-defined. Um, and it hopefully works for both parties. I think as you get into larger projects, I mean, we heavily rely on the AIA contract, which is just an architectural contract. It's very well respected. Um, and I think it, 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 it serves both, both parties well. Uh, and every sort of nuance is, is pretty well defined. So there's a change order process, there's a, an overage process, there's a you know, dry rot you know, addressing, things like that to where, uh, again, as you get, and I typically tell clients anything over that $150,000 threshold, you really should in, 
be engaged in an, in an AIA contract. Well, and, and one of which is great advice, right? You're subbing out a little bit of the liability, but to, to say, Hey, look, you know, at this price point, what's five grand to have an attorney work through this process. Absolutely. The, you know, sometimes I've found that people get hung up on the, the small things, you know, mm -hmm. markups, material markups is a really good example of that. Yeah. Right. Because with material markups, people kind of get a, a spur, right? They're like, ah, it just doesn't feel right from the consumer perspective. So, is it coming down to bottom line? Are those material markups justified? Is it part of their business model? And it's just kind of, hey, I'm not going to tell you how to run your business. I want to know that you can complete the project in a timely manner and get the job done. How, how, what's the focus there? I, um, I tend to care to a certain point. I think if, if it gets to a point of like gouging and I'm saying, you know, I sort of know what the pallet cost is for some hardy signing and you guys are charging me an extra 10 grand, like what the heck? But I think if, as long as I start to build this scope, my ultimate goal is to get to, I mean, I don't, I hate to use the term, you know, not to exceed, but like, I want a flat rate. So like, however that contractor builds that in and def defines that for them in house, I really don't care. Cause that cost is going to be my cost. Um, as it relates to, you know, sourcing materials as a property owner, as a, as a manager company, I can't, I don't have any relationships with suppliers. So like at the end of the day, I may look at something that's sitting on the shelf of Home Depot and be like, well, that looks pretty cheap. Well, that's not the product we're putting in. That's like for your DIY person, like you're buying a more substantial commercial grade, high end, long-term product. Um, so some of that stuff, again, you know, how much do you want to get into the, the nuances of, you know, how things are manufactured and all the rest. But I hope that in that relationship with the contractor, they're finding me value through that sourcing. And they're saying we can buy in bulk, we can save you money in this way. So if they want to skim the top of that and basically find a little bit of extra profit in that, I honestly don't care. Like that's, I'm fine with that. Um, I want to be transparent in the bid. Yeah. Um, just don't gouge me. And a lot of times I can set up this, this contract and even the, the bid, you know, as I start to engage contractors through, you know, allowances and contingencies and say, Hey, you know, we've sort of set this thing up. So we have an allowance for certain things. If we need it, it's there. So we have some of those things built in. If I don't use it, I get that money back. Um, so then some of that gets thrown into that, uh, that material sort of, uh, workup as far as the estimate goes. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, I've, and you know, what's kind of eye-opening for me, too, is I know, like, for example, like, material quality does matter a lot. And I know, like, for example, like, you know, one of the plumbing companies we work with, you know, for a, a shutoff valve for a toilet, right, um, the one that you get at Home Depot that's got, like, a plastic stem or whatever it is, you know, the, the, the one that they're buying, they're charging you probably the same price, but it's actually a better, you know, material and... Yeah. What that means is when you go to use that shutoff valve, it's not going to break. That's exactly you know? right. And so, and they're actually basically paying, you know, I'm paying the same price I would for the Home Depot part, but because they have that volume supplier relationship, yeah. they're getting a discount, they're marketing up, but they're, it, it's, it's still a win-win situation. So, I mean, I, I think contractors sometimes don't do a good job of articulating material differences. I tend to, I tend to agree. I, I feel like most contractors, um, they probably have the, they probably make most of their profit, I think through sort of that, that material sourcing. But I don't necessarily begrudge them that, especially in the current market where um, labor is driving the the construction costs. I mean, it's just a labor problem. Well, who who so. do the best contractors want to work for, and why? Because I mean, like we talked, I think we had this uh, with Nathan Young, uh, with the, which was another episode that we did. Um, he said, you know, ultimately you have to have a a great crew, and at the end of the day, if you have a bunch of turnover everyone is doing their job specifically and great. 
as opposed to back in the day when there was a little bit of everything. Absolutely. A, a carpenter could be a framer, yep. could be a tile setter, could be a whatever. Yeah. And now it's not like that anymore, right? So who are, who are the best contractors wanting to work for and why? I think I kind of go back to what I said earlier where I want, I, th I think as a contractor, you want to work for a client who is really focused on quality is focused on a long-term approach. Um, and then once we sort of start there, now we can, now we can discuss, you know, obviously, you know, cost. Um, but I think that's key. I think that as a contractor, I want to work for somebody who is transparent with me and not always, you know, hiding the ball or, I mean, one of the things that we do as, as a consultant, we'll just come in with those owners and we'll just be like, what is your investment strategy with this thing? Are you going to flip this in two years? Are you going to hold this for, I mean, we have clients that hold properties uh, because of HUD contracts for 60 years. So like, that's a, I mean, they are in this thing for the long term. So as we start to build scopes for that, we're saying you want the highest end quality. You want obviously it to be installed correctly. Um, so that's going to engage different, you know, different solutions. Um, but again, I mean, as, as a contractor, you just want people to be transparent with you. You want people to be upfront with you. Um, so you're not basically being blamed on the back end when they're, they change their mind and they didn't realize that this was involved and that was involved. And it, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. That contractor has to be just as transparent to say, this will cost you more if you make this decision, um, versus just telling, I think contractors put themselves in, you know, sticky situations because they promise, promise, promise. And the reality is they can't, they just can't deliver it. And they set an expectation for these owners that is, they just can't meet rather than just being honest and saying, every time you change your mind, it, it doubles your cost, triples your cost. So let's just have this, let's have a, I mean, on our large projects, I mean, we probably have between a 10 to 13 month pre-construction plan. I mean, like we are, we are working through all those questions and answers before any dirt is moved, before anything gets demoed, before anything happens, we're already working through those problems. So when those things arise in the field, we've already come to a solution and hopefully that's contractual. It's, it's in the contract, um, which I think that's where contractors would like to be. Yeah. And just from your time, I mean, you know, obviously like sitting on your side of the, of the fence there, um, you know, what sort of red flags do you see from potential customers where you're like, Hey, nope, that that's somebody we don't want to work for. Cause I know in our industry, we definitely have owners or you know, <laughs> yeah. prospective clients that interview us. And I mean, we definitely have some questions we ask cause it helps us determine if we even want to work for them. I think that starts with sort of, again, qualifying and saying, um, there's nothing against, you know, what we would call, you know, Chuck in the truck, just trying to build, build a business and kind of do his own thing and be an independent contractor. Uh, where you, where you get into trouble is that if that person is, is coming in and giving you the deal of all deals and you're like, I'm getting the greatest deal ever, there's obviously intent, inherent risk in that. I mean, that's with anything. So that's where I feel like owners put themselves in, in poor situations, uh, because they are so concerned with the cost. And I, and I understand, I mean, there's obviously the costume business, but then as we go out and do repairs, we're sort of in this negotiation mode. Um, that's a huge one. I think the next one is don't let that relationship get in the way of good business. I have, I've had clients who 
you know, we go out and do a, you know, a property investigation with related, related to construction defect. And we're coming back to that client saying, you have clear, well-defined construction defect in this project, and you are within your terms of statute uh, to execute litigation. Uh, and we recommend that you do. And that owner turns around and says, well, I'm good friends with this guy. He's done, he's done like three projects for me. Um, okay. Um, and now they basically choose not to sue their friend, which I understand, but now here it is, the statute expires. Um, and this is real world. Um, a child falls through the floor. Um, and now they're coming back to us saying, Oh, we're ready to execute that. And I'm saying you, you've, your statute has run. You have no opportunity for litigation. You have no opportunity for anything. You're still stuck with a property that has all kind of defect everywhere. And now you're just going to fit 100% of the bill. So you, sometimes you just have to sort of, you know, bifurcate those two things and say, Hey, I have a relationship with this person, but I still have an obligation to the property. I still have an obligation to my potential investors. I still have an obligation to take advantage of every potential financial, you know, benefit that I have. Um, and that's, that's one that I've seen a lot. And I think the, the extreme in that sense is those owners who are just not concerned with life safety issues yeah, because huge, yeah. they're rolling the dice saying, you know, the reality is I'm just sort of playing, playing musical chairs with these different properties. And as long as I'm not the last one without a chair, I don't really care. And as a, as a consultant, we've, we've walked away from not numerous, but probably three projects thing that, just yeah. from ethics point of view yeah. to say, I can't take that risk. Um, and I think as a contractor, I think you're smart to do that too. Just to say, there's no way I can warranty this. There's no way I should be involved in this. Good luck hiring this other guy. Um, and I mean, yep. it, it is what it is. So, I mean, you, you get into those situations and a lot of it's relational. Some of it's business model. Um, but I think as a, as a contractor and as a, as a manager and owner, you just need to realize those red flags and just trust your gut and that and yeah. sort of, and step away. Well, That's, it seems like, you know, if you go into a partnership with a friend, mm-hmm. right. Or a spouse or whatever, and you got an LLC set up, it seems like that's like a marriage to a certain extent, right? There can be some conflict because everyone has preferences where they want to go cheap on this and expensive on that, or they don't want to do it right now. They want to do it later. They're going to cut this corner or that corner. It seems like, you know, you and your team would be a good fit on a project like this so that you can get rid of any personal relationship that you might have and say, yeah, you might know that drywall guy, but I know that drywall guy didn't show up for the last three jobs and we're not going to incorporate that. So it might be a, a nice little third party for you, in particular, how much marriage counseling I think, are you doing? I right think now? my <laughs> clients, my clients use us as the bad cop all the time as well as they should. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like, you know, you get in these situations where on the backside, they're saying we really need to, uh, confront this. We need to get this changed. Uh, and we take that role and say, no problem. I mean, at the end of the day, we go out and we are that owner's eyes and ears. So just imagine how, how, how all those, contractors would be scurrying if they knew the owner was showing up that day. Right. Yeah. Well, the reality is when I show up three times a week, I am, I am the owner. Like I am, I'm just as good as the owner. So have your stuff together, be tight, do it right. Cause I'm watching. And I think that that whole series of events is, is very valuable. I mean, it's just, it's so valuable. And I see the, the culture sort of transitioning into that, especially on the larger renovation projects, because I think as you look at, construction defect, you know, you sort of look at it as, you know, 
it's sort of this, you know, outlier sort of cottage industry. And, and I've actually did a training for you know, a group of developers uh, a couple of months ago. And they're like, you know, how do we avoid construction defect? And I'm like, the reality is you just, you have to have someone in the field on a regular daily basis that represents you represents the contract, understands the specs, understands installation, and is there basically, you know, watching. Yeah. Just, you can just measure, constant you know, you oversight. Can what you what you measure, you know. Absolutely. And, that's kind of and, so, and, that, and that's it, you know, and it's like, there's, there's no other way around it. Yep. Well, we definitely appreciate you being with us so far. We're going to go to a quick break here for our listeners, and then we'll be back to talk a little bit more with you about improvements and some more important things. So stay tuned. Every real estate transaction is an investment. Whether you're buying your first home, selling your current home, or looking for an investment property, you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth. Matt Williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one. Unlike other realtors, Matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate, go to bisonproperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N properties.com. And we're back with Zach Howell from uh, Bear. He's been going over some uh, processes, some scope, uh, just kind of working through projects in general when we're looking at major uh, capital improvements and um, how to kind of keep those on track. Can you describe the difference, Zach, between maintenance and capital improvement projects? I think maintenance from a preservation perspective really is, uh, I kind of explain it like this. Maintenance is sort of you putting money into a savings account um, it's not easy. It's, you know, it's sort of the last resort. You kind of do it because you have to do it. Whereas these capital improvements are sort of like visa, like I'm just doing it cause it's, <laughs> it's cool. And I'll get some, you know, it's, it's instant gratification. It's fun. Those projects are just enjoyable. They're just more exciting, more fun. Um, so as you look at something from a, you know, from a capital expenditure from a, or a maintenance expenditure, I think you're just looking at things to say, again, what is my long-term investment strategy, but the maintenance really is this daily grind to say, you know, how are we extending the useful life of our components? How are we investing in that annual budget to say, yes, we're going to clean gutters three times a year. We're going to clean the roofs every two years. We're going to do preventive maintenance inspections. And we're not only going to do them, but we're actually going to execute what we find once we collect that data um, versus the capital, which is to say, um, we want to replace all the roofs. I look at sort of, I, I was kind of trained in this industry to have two separate portions, which is, you know, capital expenditure. And we always use this old school term called major maintenance. And so that you're looking at something to say a major maintenance type of thing would say, I have a 10 building, you know, apartment complex. I'm only going to replace one roof of the complex. That's not necessarily going to hit my capital uh, expenditure, but it's definitely a major maintenance piece. But what that does is now it creates, um, a new install date and a new preventative maintenance schedule for that specific one-off roof, which is a problem. Um, so now I have nine other roofs that are 25 years old and I have one that's two years old. So when, I, when those other ones reach their useful life, am I gonna go in and just replace nine or am I gonna do all 10? So that's where you start to get into some of these, these questions as it relates to, should I just maintain it? Should I capitalize it? My, my preference is to say, if you come up on a scenario where you have a singular component, and that could be windows, siding, anything, you know, that specific component um, that's reaching its useful life. 
if you can capitalize it, do it all at the same time. Um, when you're doing siding, do the windows. Don't replace all your siding and then have to come back 10 years later and punch holes in your new siding and try to waterproof in new windows. I've seen clients do that. Um, don't do that. So I think that's where you sort of get into that question of, you know, can I sort of limp this thing along um, for three or four more years until I get to this place where I can refinance, I can do these larger capital improvements? Um, that's, that's ideal. I mean, is it, is it always easy? No. Um, does it always look great? No. But I think if you have a maintenance plan from the beginning, hopefully you're meeting your useful lives because you are maintaining that property from the beginning. And then you're just hitting your regular, um, you know, expiration dates and you're planning for capital repairs and you're just doing that thing on yep. a regular cycle versus yep. not doing anything, have it all be deferred. And now at the end of the day, you're basically just throwing money at things to make it go away. So, um, you know, and obviously, you know, so Matt brought up a good point, kind of, you know, there are big differences between capital improvements and just kind of routine maintenance. Yeah. And it's funny because the car industry has done a phenomenal job of training their customers to like understand maintenance is key. People don't usually get upset about it. When something you know, goes bad yeah. at a property, people are like, well, I gotta fix it, you know. But, um, you know, kind of leading <laughs> back to the repair side of things, you know, you got, um, and we were talking about this a little bit when we were talking about bids, and so I was kind of curious, you know, you have some projects that are time and materials and you have some that are bids. And I feel like this fits kind of nicely in with like capital improvement versus mm -hmm. um, repairs potentially, you know, which one is better? Like when should you have someone bid something? When should you time and materials? I am a very strong believer in flat rating as much as you possibly can. And to say, I want a bid for that piece of work. And if you're a contractor that understands the project, you should be able to understand the materials related to the project, the time it will take you to do the project, uh, and be able to give me a, a realistic bid for that. I think you, as you get into sort of the TNM, you're, you're getting into a situation where you don't know if that contractor is going to work quickly. You don't know if that contractor is going to slow things down so they can maximize, obviously, their time and their hours. Um, so I kind, of, I kind of separate the two to say, you know, if it's an in-house and you have an employee, then certainly pay that person by the hour. I mean, you have control of that person's time and you're directing them specifically on what you want to do. Um, I try to get in a situation with contractors where I'm saying, I, I want to get to a point where everything really is on a bid proposal and I can hold people to that. Um, if they think they can do it in two days, fine. I can still put sort of parameters on that to say, you, you know, you said you're going to do this back, you know, French door, you know, for 4,000 um, bucks. I'd like to have it done in, two days versus we'll just time and materials it at the end of the day. Like it's probably going to cost you maybe cost you slightly less, maybe cost you $3,500, but it takes you two weeks and residents are all pissed off and you just have these other issues that just drama that comes along with that. So I think you pay for that in some ways, but you're also getting a, it's not like guarantee, but you're certainly getting some expectations from that. So kind of what I'm, I think I'm hearing you say, and maybe this is obviously not always true, but it sounds like that maybe a time and a material approach can sometimes be like, you know, amateur hour, um, and maybe be a flag that they're going to learn on your dime. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Anytime you have a contractor that comes and says, I can't bid this project on a flat rate because I don't know what I'm going to find. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. Then my red flag back to this. Well, then you must not have a lot of experience with this. If you're out there and you're saying, we do this every day. Like I know exactly what this is going to take. And I can look at that. I can look at that window and say, my guys will install that window in two and a half hours. And we're just going to charge you $600. Then, 
great. Now how many windows do I have? Like that's a much better approach than to say, hey, like, you know, 95 bucks an hour. Well, geez, is it going to take you eight hours, six hours? Now all of a sudden you go back the next day and in your mind, you're like, you know, is the clock, has the clock been running now for the last day or two? Like, I don't know. Um, and so it's sort of this open-ended, you know, I, I don't know, it's not really a guess, but it's certainly open-ended. And I think as a, as a, as an operator, I'm trying to define as much of my, whether it's, whether I'm looking at it, uh, from a budgetary standpoint to set my, my next year's budget or whatever, uh, I want to have that at least that not to exceed, but I don't have that budgetary number versus just kind of an open-ended, we don't know. You know, Zach, we've talked a lot or, you know, you've taught a lot of classes actually in the property management industry specifically to multifamily folks who are trying to figure out how to have someone oversee a, a capital improvement project that's on site. And a lot of times these folks don't do this for a living, right? I mean, they're the property manager that knows landlord tenant laws, Certainly. they serve notices, they are oftentimes managing their leasing staff and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. that's, it's quite a, quite a different task. And so you're trying to teach them how to do that. But, you know, a lot of our investors, they, they want to know that too, right? I mean, they want to know really what they're going to be doing to uh, try to get a number or to set a budget for improvements over time. And I think that you're really well-versed in that. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? You know, are you looking at average numbers, uh, the average numbers for jobs, the price per square foot, actual bids for them? And that's a moving target, right? Because the prices always change. Certainly. I, I think my, typically my approach to that is to just take that on a component by component basis initially. So as we go out and we do an inspection or an analysis, we're basically saying, um, what is the expected useful life? What is the remaining useful life? Uh, what is the repair cost versus uh, a, some sort of maintenance schedule to maybe buy us a couple more years to get us to this other you know, threshold? Um, and then we try to take that and you know, accumulate all those different components. And I, the, the best way that I feel like you can do that from that, I just look at it as, as, a, as a capital, whether it's a capital plan or whatever that is, uh, replacement schedule, is to have as many uh, categories as possible. I mean, and look at that from a standpoint to say, we're gonna take each one of these as an, as an independent line item, and then we can go back and we can prioritize each of those as it relates to our investment strategy. So if I go out and I say, um, you know, we have appliances that were installed in 2005. Okay, so here we are, those are 14 year old appliances. So what's my expected useful life of that appliance? Well, that, that refrigerator is gonna be expected to last less than the range. So do we need to replace ranges? Probably not. Should we have something in the budget for refrigerators? Absolutely. Once one goes, another one's gonna go right behind it. So you sort of look at it from that way and you can look at your larger capital you know, components as well to say, you know, my, my roof was installed in 1995 and here I sit and I'm at this sort of 30 year threshold and I know I've got this 30 year roof. Um, it seems to be performing okay. Um, do I need to replace it? I don't know, maybe not. So have a qualified person come out and look at that and then start to schedule that. I, ideally, what I'd like to see is, you know, as you start to build some replacement schedules about halfway through that term, you're already putting those, those funds aside uh, for that expiration date. And that's where I try to get my clients to say, um, you know, here is the actual amount you should be putting away in each of these categories, um, as whatever you call it, rainy day fund or anything. Um, so that when this regular expiration happens, you have some funds set aside uh, versus just waiting for this thing to fail and then going back to the owner and being like, oh, hey, like, you know, we need $350,000 to replace this roof. And they're like, well, I don't have $350,000. Meanwhile, the roof is leaking. 
and now it's active and now it's priority number one. Uh, and now you have, you know, people being relocated, vacant units, just sitting, uh, and all those obviously impact, um, you know, that, that property's operation. So that's typically how we go about it and how we look at that. I mean, it's a little more dynamic than that, but in, in a nutshell, we want to try to hit those things individually and then prioritize maybe our top five, top seven, uh, and then attack those. And then the other pieces fall into some sort of maintenance protocol. So when you're doing a, an apartment rehab, is there a specific process or order for the projects? I mean, to give you an example, I buy mobile home parks and what I do, I try not to impact the tenants as much, but I come in and I give them a great place to live. So I come in and we'll do sidewalks and streets and community and grass and compliance so that everyone's kind of tidying up their own little space. Then we'll go in, you know, to the next phase. And some of those projects, you know, are, are less sexy, right? A new roof is a lot of money and it's not sexy. Certainly, it's like new, new bathrooms, a lot of money <laughs> and you see it every day. So is exactly. there a process for a rehab that you would say if you're stabilizing an apartment complex? Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I typically, our, our approach, typically if we're out doing due diligence or something and somebody's acquiring a project and they're like, hey, we want to do this, this, this rehab sort of phased out. Um, I think you have to start with the envelope and typically it's the roof. I mean, you've got to get a new roof on something and get that envelope, you know, that cladding and the wall and the windows and everything else dry. I think from there you can sort of, you know, say, hey, you know, do we need to do, you know, siding right now or can we start to improve the residence um, interior? And that, that interior typically is going to start with flooring. Like flooring is one of the biggest impacts you can do. That's going to impact that resident to say, um, you know, we're going away from carpet and we're going to, you know, luxury vinyl plank. We're doing something like that, which is a, a, another long-term investment. Um, I would do those types of things before I looked at cabinets or countertops or even appliances, um, because that is just a day-to-day reminder of maybe why we're increasing rent or we're doing these other things. Um, cause that resident doesn't care if you put a new roof on there, they don't see it. They don't really care. But as far as, you know, just protecting the investment, it's, it's huge. So yeah, I mean, you sort of have this progression as you start to walk through, you know, the methods of that. But, um, I try to do, you know, I try to encourage my clients to do a little bit of both. Um, I think that there's things that certain clients have in their head as if there's some sort of a priority. And for me, I'll, I'll just be very honest and transparent with them. Just be like, that's not going to matter. It's not. So like, you know, I get in, you know, people want to do like, granted or whatever. Right. And you're like, that's a very high cost threshold that is not going to, it's not going to really have a big impact as it relates to the resident. The resident is like, I have a countertop that functions. It doesn't have to be granite. It doesn't, you know, why you're just going to raise my rent because you put a granite countertop. I don't need a granite countertop. Right. So those are some of the things I think as owners, we sort of want to reach, we want to turn the C into a C plus or a B or whatever. Um, I don't necessarily think those are the ways to do it. I look at it to say, you know, look at the flooring, um, look at your fixtures, uh, look at the stuff uh, in the wall to just say, you know, what, you know, do I have, you know, CPVC plumbing? Do I have galvanized plumbing? Do I have, you know, even, you know, copper that's just old that I need to go out and really do a repipe so that this, you know, this central system that is just, when it fails, it's going to fail catastrophically. Um, it's just operating and it's, it's operating for the long term. And again, those are not sexy repairs. Um, but man, as it relates to the long-term feasibility of that property and even potentially resale, they have a, they have real value. 
So I'm, I'm hearing you say it's really a little bit by trade or by product, not necessarily by unit, right? I mean, yeah. if you're looking at stabilization, you, you can create the community on the exterior and the envelope, mm-hmm. but then they're doing, you know, flooring throughout the units as opposed to as they turn over, just not full rehab, full rehab. Absolutely. I don't know that. I mean, it's, it's kind of been my experience. I feel like most people, again, it kind of depends on what's there, but I mean, if you've got some old, you know, particle board, you know, garbage cabinets with garbage, you know, countertops, like that should probably be updated. But if you've got something that is robust and looks fine and is operational, um, I would go ahead and roll with that. Try to get another five, six, 10 years out of that. Cause the reality is the residents are like, this is operating for me. What I want to find out from that resident is what doesn't work for you. Like what, you know, what drives you crazy? So it's functionality. Functionality is yeah. key, especially if you're going to go in and try to, um, you know, increase rents or reposition that property in some way, but you want to try to retain some of the majority of the residents if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what it comes down to. And I think for most people, that flooring piece is a huge impact mm-hmm. just to say, hey, I no longer have to vacuum. I may have cats and dogs and flat, you know, just hard surface, just better. I may have ADA concerns. I may have, there's lots of the things that that flooring component just solves a lot of my problems. So what what, are, what would you say are some of the items that are missed in a budgeting project when they're looking at a, a rehab on an, on an apartment complex or something? Is the the biggest one that I that I highlight is uh, indoor air quality. Mm. So like when you reclad a building, what you're doing is you are tightening up that envelope in such a way where what it was doing before was basically breathing through those fenestrations, right? All the fenestration just basically being a a predetermined planned hole in the envelope, right? A wall, a door, whatever. And air is flowing in and out of that, right? So there's there's airflow there. And what we've done is we've come in and we have waterproofed and closed up and sealed up all of those potential areas for airflow. So once we reclad that building, we are 100% reliant upon our mechanical venting systems. And if I've got some, you know, small 50 CFM fan in the middle of the unit, that's just not going to cut it. And so what happens is people do all these, you know, major capital improvements on recladding and the property looks amazing. But now all of a sudden everybody is complaining that now they have mold, right? Cause all that moisture that they're generating every single day hasn't changed, but the airflow calculation has changed. Um, and so we come in and we say, Hey, if you're going to do this reclad, you have to have this corresponding, you know, mechanical ventilation, design that gets upgraded at the same time. And then the, the second one would definitely be um, attic ventilation. I mean, the attic ventilation of most of our properties is, is not calculated correctly. So the intakes at the, at the eaves and things like that are way undersized. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's interesting to look at some of these things and to know that it was passed at the point of construction by some, you know, city inspector or whatever. Um, because again, those are going to be areas where you're going to start to contain moist air and you're going to have organic growth. I mean, we're in the Northwest, they just will. So those are two major ones that we include in just about everything we do um, because it's, it's a huge impact on the resident, but obviously down the road, it's an impact on that owner because now they have a potential litigation problem. Yeah. Say mold is gold. At least that's what attorneys Dude, say. It's, it's <laughs> insane, man. It's, it's insane. And so again, anything you can do to reduce that potential liability on the front end to say, yeah, I mean, I get, I mean, we, like we typically would spec like a Panasonic whisper green, like continuously running fan. Um, it's a $155 fan. Like yeah. it's, it's expensive. Um, but in the terms of, Hey, we're doing a $2.5 million reclad. Sure. 
get yourself the fans, <laughs> yeah. like that is going to just put you in a whole other level as it relates to organic growth for the next 40 years. So those have like humostats in them. So yeah. So yeah. some of them are continuously, I'll just kind of talk about it real quick because it's really important in my opinion. So the continuously running fan really is a fan that runs all day, all night, 365. Uh, and it runs at 30 CFM when nobody's in the room. When somebody enters the room, has a sensor and kicks up to 80 CFM. Um, so that's, you know, that's turning air. Um, when they leave the room after you can set it for zero, 10 or 30 minutes, and then it basically drops back down to 30. So what we do with that too, is to say, we want those bathroom doors cut, uh, at least one inch above the carpet line or the floor line. Mm. So that even with that bathroom door closed, if that bathroom ventilation fan is my only source of mechanical ventilation, uh, it's actually pulling the air from the unit under the door and exhausting that out. And it'll turn over a typical Panasonic fan will turn over, you know, 12, you know, hundred square feet unit uh, every 18 to 20 hours, which is great, which yeah. means just constant airflow. Uh, the humidistat fan works in a little bit different way. Basically, the humidistat fan is sensing relative humidity in the air, which is the amount of moisture in the actual air. Uh, anytime that relative humidity hits 60%, the fan is on. Yeah. So both fans are out of the resident control, which yeah. is what you want. Right. Exactly. Take like, as much as you noise, can. I will like <laughs> save power. I'm turning it off. Right. Yeah, and the, the the Panasonics are beautiful because they literally are. Um, they're they're almost silent. I mean, they just you know they have a little bit extra maintenance. I mean, you got to clean the filters you know once a year, and it's about as simple as running it under the faucet and then shaking it dry and putting it back up. It's very simple. Um, but again, as a as a you know, I'm thinking of this project as an exterior project. I'm not even thinking of the interiors, but that has a massive impact on that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that uh, experience teaches you um, is the lessons that come from mistakes, uh, yeah. the lessons that uh, come mostly financial mistakes, right? Like we've, yeah. we've seen some stuff that's happened that has really like opened my eyes to like how I would approach projects, how, how yeah. I approach contractors. Yeah. Um, you know, do you have any maybe like obviously we don't have a lot of time to go into all of them, but do you have like one like maybe horror story that like really kind of changed the way that you view a particular process or trade or anything like that? Um, I don't necessarily have something that, that makes me think of different trades or things like that. The, the one that, that I start to think of that comes to mind is, uh, is, is specifically related to contractors and bidding and collecting bids is we had a project up in uh, Seattle where the backside of six buildings actually cantilevered over a pond, okay? So we had to reclad the backs, obviously the reside and windows, the backside of these buildings. And we sent this, this, you know, these, uh, scopes out, uh, to four contractors. And obviously when we get those scopes back, we always do a closed bid, uh, process where we basically have all the closed bids. We meet with the clients. We open up each of the bids independently with that client uh, and go over each one and start to work with them, comparing and contrasting the bids. And this one bid came back and this guy was like, $110,000 cheaper on, on the, on these buildings. And of course the owner is like, that's, that's what I wanted to use that guy. <laughs> like, hold on, a, hold on a second. So as we started to just dig into this guy, I called this guy back. I'm like, Hey, uh, you know, just going over the, the bids and, you know, we, you know, we sort of had some questions, uh, you know, some of the other bids are coming in a little bit higher. We're just wondering sort of what your approach is going to be and da 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 da. And as I was talking to this guy, I came to the realization that he never went to the property. 
right? Oh, wow. So yeah. he's just looking at this thing saying, hey, we have, you know, 24 buildings and, you know, they're all going to basically be the same. Or we're just going to pump jack all these and they're just going to be really, you know, it's just a straightforward job. Yeah. And I just, I just was like on the phone with this guy. I'm like, do you realize that there's, that there's eight buildings that are cantilevered over a pond? And he's just like, what? And I was <laughs> like, yeah, like, how are you going to stage that? How are you going to get access to that? He's like, well, I haven't actually been to the property. I Googled it. And obviously from outer space, the pond just looks like grass. I mean, it just looks like an empty space. It's sure. just a little area in the middle of the buildings. So he didn't realize that it's, you know, six feet deep of water. So um, that, again, is so kind of one of those things. So as we started to kind of go through that process, we're like, okay, we're going to make a requirement through the bidding process that every contractor must physically send a representative to the project, uh, meet with us on site, walk the project, all this stuff. And, and typically we would. Um, but in this case, like for whatever, again, it's sort of, again, you're talking about a project that's, you know, up in Seattle. So we're like, you know, we can kind of do some of this stuff mobily. Um, and our expectation was like, you know, why wouldn't somebody walk that project and get a feel for what they're going to bid? Um, never been there. Never, never, never been on the, never been on site. Yeah. So those are things from our point of view where we're like, we just need to we at that. And this is years ago, but like, you know, we just need to be more um, conscientious about that and really just put that as a requirement. Um, so that was, that was a, that's a totally random one. It's a lot of babysitting. So you're, you're, it's ba- always babysitting. you're babysitting the contractors. It's a constant yeah. babysit. I think where you get is you find contractors that you just have to babysit less. You're always, even good contractors need to be babysat. Yeah. Because well, good contractors are going to send subs out that they think are good. And now you're babysitting the subs. I mean, if there's more education we do on a daily basis as it concerns waterproofing a window. And we're, I mean, it's, I'll just give you kind of this last 18 months has been nuts, but like, when that labor pool comes out, a lot of times there's there's a competition in you know the, the valley and especially you know Portland centric. There's only so many crews, so I've had projects where I've had one guy control forty workers, right? So like if that one guy is talking with someone over here and they get a better deal. Friday afternoon, they're like, hey, we're not, gonna, we're not coming back next week. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, hey, we got a better deal. And so what they're doing is they're just, I mean, they're just holding, I mean, they're, they're holding you under a, a rock, man. They're like, you, you have to up, up our pay, increase our labor rate, uh, or we walk. Um, and they don't, you know, at that point, it's just like, well, I'll sue you. Like, I don't care. Like, whatever. Um, and so you're stuck with this sort of paradigm and it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, but that I say that to say this, that as those crews start to come in, those guys that are sort of those, um, rainmakers or linchpins of those crews, um, they don't know really who those guys are coming in and we could hire a crew to come in and do demo. And all of a sudden the siding crew didn't show up that day. And we're asking the demo crew that GC is asking that demo crew to go hang siding. Right. And I'm there as a consultant being like, all that sign is all got to come down. That looks like garbage. It's coming down, yeah. you know, because it's like those people didn't know what they're doing. So, again, having that oversight and that constant sort of education and then just going through another thing I haven't mentioned yet, but too, is just like, you know, if you're doing those large projects, you've got to have mock ups. I mean, you've got to have something that people can refer to and be like, this is how it's going in. Um, and some people don't do that and they get they get in trouble. And by the time that owner may come out, uh, the cladding is up. 
They have no idea how this thing was waterproof. They don't know if WRB is reverse lap. They don't know if there's anything that was in the scope is actually there because it just looks beautiful and there's new siding up. Yeah. Right? It's too late at that point. Well, Zach, thanks for joining us today. I really My appreciate that. We're going to get into some personal stuff, but it seems like um, you know someone who is an investor but has a lot of other things going on or they work on behalf of, a, of a, an LLC, maybe they're the, the manager mm-hmm. of the LLC or something, yeah. um, if they've got a rehab, you'd be a great resource for them. So I hope, I hope our audience uh, yeah. certainly saw some of that. Is there an aha moment um, that you've had in the past year or so that's changed some approach, whether it be you know business or part of your career, your investment strategies, anything like that? Um, I, I think that I didn't realize uh, the impact that a booming economy has on the labor force. And I, and I can't, I mean, obviously we all kind of talk about it, um, but it's a, it's a huge problem. And I, I mean, I talk about it from the, from the, from the maintenance standpoint as well to say, um, this, you know, this group of this generation of, of millennials is just not, they don't want to work with their hands. They don't, they're not great at problem solving. They have a massive fear of, um, failure. So they don't try new things. They don't just jump in. So that has a huge impact, not only for us in the, in the, in the rental industry, just to say, are there going to be a pipeline of new qualified people as these older folks retire, take all that institutional knowledge with them? Um, who is filling those, those, those roles? And what you're seeing is this transition from, we have all our in-house guys and they're, you know, they're trained up and they're maintenance when it's sort of going to, we can't find any in-house guys. Nobody wants to do this job. So what they're doing is now all, not all that, but a huge portion of that is starting to be outsourced. So now we have companies that are coming in and doing turnkey turns. You hand them the key, they hand you the turn back in three days and you don't have a maintenance. You don't have someone there doing that turn. Right. So that's a huge, that's a huge transition. Um, and I think as you look at the industry as a whole, especially from the, just the apartment maintenance side, you get to this, this dynamic like shift where we've always sort of had a guy on site to where I don't know that you'll always see that because those people are just not going to be there to want to have those, those jobs. So, I mean, again, I mean, it's, it's happening in the trades. It's happening you know, all over the place. So I think as, a, as an industry, we need to be very, very... Um, forward thinking in how we are maybe even recruiting people into this industry to say, you know, we, we should have people that are out in high schools, you know, whether it's a staffing company or whatever, like telling people that this industry is a professional potential career for you. Um, And it's not hard to get trained up in this industry. You just need to have a little bit of drive, you know, show up on time. Like people just need to know what's possible. And yeah, I don't, I just don't think we do a good job of that. I don't think we do a good job of that yeah. on the construction or the maintenance side. Sure. So uh, my question is, can you tell me about or tell our audience uh, about a ritual you have and do every day? Oh, God. Um, my ritual every day is completely related to my kids. So um, I've got three and I am I'm the one that wakes them up pushes them out the door, gets them to school, does all that. Again, as a, um, I've always desired to be self-employed and that's one of the reasons why. Yeah. Like I want to be that dad. I want to, I want to take them to school. I want to pick them up from school. I want to go to ball games. I want to do all that stuff. I want to coach. Um, 
So that it really, that there's really the only ritual I have. The thing I love about construction and maintenance is that it's always changing. And I, I don't have those ruts. Those ruts drive me crazy. So I love the, the dynamic of once I sort of get through this first hour and a half of my day, um, every day is different. Sure. I mean, I, that's one of the things I love. It's one of the things I loved, you know, when I was, you know, really performing operations and maintenance is like, I love to problem solve. Like that's, that's one of my, that's one of my favorite things. So it's a tough question. Cause there's nothing that I do probably other than that, like every single day, I don't do lunch. I don't, I mean, a lot of times we just, you just work. I mean, it's different. Well, maybe working is your uh, ritual. Working. Yeah. Working <laughs> is the ritual for sure. Working is the ritual for sure. Um, how, yeah. how do you, how do you measure success, Zach? I measure success in your ability to control your time. That is probably my biggest measurement of success. Can you do the things that interest you and you're passionate about uh, when you want? And then that's not to say um, whatever. I mean, maybe that is for you. Maybe that's travel or whatever. For me, it's, it's not necessarily that. To me, it's um, if I recognize an opportunity, I want to have the flexibility to, uh, to look into that. And to have that freedom to potentially pursue that if I if I find that necessary, um, I just learned early in my life that um, I'm honestly I'm, I'm not a great employee. I don't I don't really like taking orders from other people. <laughs> I'm completely self motivated, self starting, all, all the rest. Um, so I don't really fit into cubicles. I don't fit into you know really specified roles. So the flexibility for me is to say. Um, if you want something done, you bring it to me and I will send it back to you completed and professionally done. Nice. Um, and that's, that's, that's really how I do measure that. And I look at other folks, I think people measure it, you know, with uh, earnings and cars and stuff like that. That stuff doesn't necessarily interest me. It's more about like, like last night I, I just, I left work at two o'clock cause my son had a game in Eugene. Like I can just do that. Yep. And guys are like, you know, how can you, you know, like, cause I control my time. That to me, that's success. I mean, that that's that's success. It is, it's not how much is in the bank. It's like, can I do what I want to do? Yeah. So, if you could have dinner with one person, dead of or alive, all, of all time, who would it be? George Washington. George Washington. One hundred percent. George Washington, in my opinion, is the greatest American and potentially the greatest human being that's ever walked the earth. Wow. To have a person who could potentially be given a throne and be the king. I mean, they called him. Your Excellency, and to have a human say, "You know what? We're going to develop this thing, and we're going to give all the power to the people." And I'm going to walk. I'm just going to walk away. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that amazing. Cool. Sorry, I, Jesus, you're number two. <laughs> I would like to sit down. I sit with Jesus every day. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm totally I think kidding. to have dinner with with George Washington would be amazing. I just I, I'm I'm always I'm always in. Uh, amazed at, at our founding fathers just in general, because I think they've done something that is so out of the box. I mean, even as we sit here today, like in the political environment, it's nuts, but like you're seeing it sort of work out. It's just like, yeah, it's, it's messy, man. Yeah. Like democracy is freaking messy. But at the end of the day, like as a group, as a, as a, as a population, at least we can decide who, who we want. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing to me. Yeah. Um, and to have those, those guys basically, uh, put everything they had, everything of value, their family, their life on the line. Um, and then to just turn around and, and, and give it away is, 
It's amazing to me. Have, have, have you been out to his place in Virginia? Oh man, I've been to I've been to Mount Vernon lots of times. Oh nice. I mean, I'm I'm like I'm yeah. George Washington. George Washington is my George life. George life. Hashtag George life. It's my man. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, good, it's a good question. Great answer. Yeah. The next question, which may be a more deep question. Yeah. Maybe more important question. Some might ask. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Let me get prepared uh, here. Whiskey or wine? Um, whiskey typically. Okay. I mean, I, I like wine. I, I tend to be more of like a, a white wine kind of guy. Um, but dude, we live in an amazing region with the great Pinot Noir. So I, I drink that too. Sure. Um, I typically, when it comes to alcohol, I'm more of a sipper. I'd rather just sit and talk and sip. And yeah, I think once you're past like 25, maybe 30, you're pretty much a sipper. Yeah. You should be. <laughs> yeah. I think you should be. <laughs> I, I should put my beer bong away. Then. I mean, if I had a preference, it would be more like gin, but like, yeah. 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 It's typically that's, you know, that's fair. Yeah. Jen's not on the list today, but yeah, not today, sure. not today. it's a good question though. Well, Hey Zach, thanks very much for coming in. We really appreciate you being here. I'm sure the yeah. audience ga- gained a lot. How can, how can they get a hold of you if they want to? Um, I, I think the best way to get a hold of me is to, is to just shoot me an email. Um, Zach, Z A C H at bear C S just like it sounds B E A R C S.com. Um, and honestly, I, I have a, a need to meet with people face to face. I, uh, I think that's just better than, than, you know, talking on the phone or, or via email. Uh, I want to get with you. I want to just see what your goals are. Um, if I'm the one that help you great, if not, then I'm certainly a resource, uh, to pass you off to quality folks. So, um, yeah, I just want to be a resource. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. If you find the show valuable, we have two favors to ask. The first is please subscribe, and the second would give us a review. The more subscribers, the more reviews we have, the better the show, the better the guests. You'll enjoy it more. Until next time, invest in the West. Mm